Welcome to Resilience Rock Sales, your front row seat to rocking your sales game. I'm your host, Stacey Kopas. Today's episode is brought to you by the Academy of Resilience Inner Circle. For more information, head to academyofresilience.com.au. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Resilience Rock Sales. Today I am joined by the amazing Nick Morgan and Nick is joining us from Boston today. I'm in Sydney and we had the amazing fortune to meet in Toronto of all places in late 2019. So I'm super excited to be able to share Nick with you today and welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, Stacey. It's good to see you, even if it's only in two dimensions. Yeah, I look forward to the day when uh, Toronto is back on both our schedules. Yeah. Oh, look, it will come, but in the meantime, we've got the... We can do you know, this. Yeah. We can do this. And that's what's been amazing. Even when things were all locked down over the previous few years, this is you know a mainstay of the communication. And it's also something that you are very well known for with your latest book around virtual communication. So what I'd love is if you could just give us a bit of a rundown of the Nick Morgan story and particularly love to hear around the communication piece. It'd be great to hear a little bit more on your expertise there and how you came to be known for that. Mm, Well, there's the origin story. There's why I got into this uh, fascinating field to begin with. And then there's the, the, uh, how I got to be known for it, which uh, are two different stories separated by surprising number of years. Um, When I was 17, three things happened to me that gave me a lifelong interest in communications. First of all, I read a book about the Dalai Lama and became a hero. Second, I learned my father was gay. And third, I died. So, yeah, I take these things in order. I read a book about the Dalai Lama, and as I say, his his feats and daring exploits in escaping from the uh, invasion of the, of the Chinese in 1959 uh, made this uh, incredible story. And he was, he was a young man then, not much older than I was at the time when I read the book. And, and so uh, it was just thrilling stuff to me. And so when I had a chance to hear him speak in person, a bit later on, he came to the University of Virginia where I was a student. And, and so I jumped at the chance. And it, you have to imagine 35 or 40 of us sitting in a, in a conference room waiting for the Dalai Lama. And this was pre, um, uh, pre-internet fame, so he wasn't a rock star yet. He was just this uh, barely uh, known, rather obscure uh, Tibetan Buddhist character. And we're sitting there, and I guess we're amongst the faithful. We're fans, because otherwise we wouldn't be there. And he doesn't show up. 10 minutes goes by, no Dalai Lama. 20 minutes, no Dalai Lama. Finally, 45 minutes later, the Dalai Lama comes running in and he's all out of breath and he's apologetic and he says, nothing. He just sits down and he looks at us and something in that look transfixed me. And I was convinced he was looking at me. And when I talked to people after his lecture, they said, no, no, he was looking at me. <laughs> and somehow he pulled off this amazing body language feat of appearing to look deeply into the eyes of everybody that I talked to, or a good sampling of the audience, and make a profound connection with us. 
And so I was just transfixed by that. How did he do that? What, what was going on there? That, what was happening? And I've since learned that if we, if we have time and want to geek out, I actually understand something of the neuroscience of what he was doing now. But back then, it was just a mystery. He was just amazing, and I was transfixed. So uh, back to Christmas, I uh, have to get a present for my dad. And he's a complicated man to, to buy a present for. Uh, but I finally settled on a book because that was always safe in our family. We were lots of books. Lots of books everywhere in the household. And, and uh, I had just read, because you had to do it in high school, E.M. Forster's A Passage to India. It was a standard requirement for the uh, curriculum. And, and weirdly, even though I knew E.M. Forster was dead, since passed to his great reward, his, his, uh, his new book was released that winter. And it turned out it was released posthumously because it was a thinly disguised uh, autobiographical novel about his homosexuality, which was illegal in his day in England. And so he'd embargoed it for 50 years after his death. And I was only sort of vaguely aware of the story, but I thought classic writer, probably good enough for my dad. So I got it, wrapped it up, put it under the tree. And the next morning when he looks at it, when he opens it up Christmas day, he gives me this funny look just for a second. And in that second, I knew something clicked in my head and I said, oh, my dad is gay. I just knew it. And he didn't come out for 10 years after that. And when he did, he, yeah, he came out to me first. This had been a secret his whole life. He came out to me first. And he said, uh, there's something I need to tell you. Will you walk in the woods with me? Because in my family, when you walk in the woods, that's where you talk the important stuff. So we're walking in the woods <laughs> and he's hemming and hawing and he, he, Clearly wants to say something, but he's really struggling. It's hard for him. So finally I say, Dad, you're gay. I know. Get over it. It's not a big deal. And he says, how did you know? And I started thinking about it. And I said, well, that look you gave me 10 years ago at Christmas. And I suddenly was aware of how odd that sounded. And he had no memory of it. So he wasn't aware at the time uh, that he had really revealed anything at all to me. So uh, Again, I was struck by, think of that, a lifetime of secrecy revealed to, admittedly, somebody who's very close to, his son, just, but just in a glance. I mean, what's going on there, right? I wanted to know, what is this exchange of information called body language, and how is it so powerful, and what's going on? So just after Christmas, that Christmas, I was tobogganing with friends, and and. I took one run on my own because I didn't think the other folks were going fast enough. I was kind of a daredevil at age 17. And, and I went too fast and crashed into a tree and fractured my skull. And I was in a coma for a week. And during that week, I lost, I died, just like in the movies, I flatlined for just a, a couple of minutes. Um, the, the machine that was going like this suddenly went and and everybody came running in with the paddles, just like in the movies, and they shot me back to life. And and when you come back um, from something like that, a traumatic brain injury, they give you a test to see whether your brain still works. Mine did. Um, I passed the rather simple test. They ask you if you know who the president is and what year it is. And a very simple test like that is just to see if you're still sort of aware of your surroundings, what's going on. And I passed the test. But 
when I went back to school, it soon became clear that there was something wrong with me, which um, I couldn't articulate very well at the time and which nobody tested for. They didn't warn me about, but I could no longer do what you and all and I now can reasonably well and all your viewers can also do. Uh, which is we are all experts in the body language of people that are close to us because we know what they do sort of from day to day. And we've observed this unconsciously for long periods of time. If they're family members or years, if they're friends or, or colleagues that we worked with for a long time. And so we know what their base level of sort of body language is. And thus we know when they're really excited or really sad or really angry. All right, we can pick that up instantly and we're pretty good at it. People can lie, but on the whole, we're pretty good at it. And we completely terrible at doing it if we don't know the person well. And so all the efforts by, in our country, the CIA and the FBI to get better at reading the truths of, you know, the, of spies and, and uh, criminals and things like that um, have failed. But uh, we're good at reading people that we know. I couldn't do that anymore, suddenly at age 17. Um, and when my friends said, because um, they were sarcastic 17-year-olds when I went back to school, Nick, you look great. I said, thanks. That's so nice of you. And they said, no, we don't mean it. We're being sarcastic, you idiot. You know, what's the matter with you? Can't you tell? And it became clear there was something really off with me. And, and so um, they were actually, to give my friends credit, after they got the idea, they were very nice about it and sort of helped me figure out by sticking their faces in my face and going, I'm smiling. That means I'm happy, Nick. No, this kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, more seriously, it took about a year before my brain recovered and I sort of retrained myself. But I was, uh, ever since, I've been sort of simultaneously aware in the way most people are, which is unconsciously, that is, you just pick up the cues from people. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to go, oh, Stacy is angry or Stacy is happy. You just know because you see it. But also I think about it consciously. And that turned out to be a great help for reading body language because mostly we don't, most people don't think about it consciously. Um, and so they don't, uh, they don't read it all the time. It's very helpful in my business to be able to do that. So that's, that's why I got started in the business was I was just fascinated by, by all these things uh, to do with body language, especially in communications. Yeah, and so and I guess you you learned it on a totally different level to how anyone else does it because I guess you said so much of it is just completely unconscious, isn't it? So to be able to make that front of mind and a, an active thing that you were doing, then it's almost like you've you kind of decoded it in a way that other people haven't. Yeah, and, and I use this as a trick all the time when I'm speaking, a friendly trick. It's not I have no no devious intent, but uh I'll I'll start with a gesture at the beginning of the talk, and I'll do the, the, that gesture. I'll hold it for for five minutes or so, and and then uh, later in the talk, when I start to reveal the mysteries of body language, I'll say, "Does anybody remember the gesture I began the talk with?" And people never do, and they're incredulous when I say I stood there for five minutes doing this particular gesture, whatever it was. I pick a different one each time. And you don't remember. And they go, eh, why don't we remember? And it's because we don't care about body language per se. 
what we care about is the intent behind the body language. And we care about that deeply. We want to know, and it's important to us and our survival and our success and our happiness and all kinds of things, that we can read each other's intent. And we, the, the place that's revealed is in body language most of the time. So if, yeah. if somebody says to you, um, you say, hey, Bill, how you doing? And he says, I'm fine. You don't read the, the words, the literal words are, he's fine. You read the, the, the intent behind the words, and that you get through body language. And that's what we care about. That's what we want to know. But if we asked you a day later, what did he say? Um, you would remember the intent. You would say something's wrong with Bill, but you would not remember the specific facial gesture that he made to indicate that or, or the shrug of the shoulders or the sigh or whatever it was he did, because what you care about is the message behind that. And I can see that that is going to be super relevant for people who are in sales, which is our audience for the podcast. So for somebody that is, is in sales, what sort of advice would you give them as far as, you know, so let's go basics. So basic stuff on the, the body language in their communication, particularly with their, you know, building relationships, that type of stuff. What's the sort of basic stuff you would get them to start with? Well, if they promise to use their powers for good and sell good stuff, then we'll reveal the secrets. But the, <laughs> um, the, what we care about at the beginning of any relationship, the first question we ask ourselves, meaning unconsciously we ask ourselves, uh, and we start scanning and looking at an enormous amount of data to, um, to determine the answer to this question is, is this person friend or foe? Meaning that's the way the experts word it, but it means, can I trust this person or not? Is this person meaning good toward me or ill? There are a number of ways to, to uh, indicate that, let's say, with uh, body language. Uh, one of them is simply to use open gestures. So, um, you know, if you're cold and feeling uncomfortable, one of the things you do often is, is fold, your, fold your arms like this. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it would suggest to somebody you were meeting for the first time that you were either feeling defensive um, or uh, resistant to them or uncomfortable with them for some reason. So it would not help uh, the answer to that question to be positive. Mm. So that's a very simple one. Now, the, there are four facial gestures that are very important in determining the friend or foe question. Um, and I'm sure some of your listeners either have a friend or a colleague or a spouse or have been told themselves that they have a, an angry resting face. Uh, <laughs> it's a thing people tell each other, you know, and if your resting face is like that, then, uh, you want to inform it. So a little self-awareness mm -hmm. is good here, but, uh, um, there are four facial gestures that are positive that build connection. And so opening the eyes wide is one, not too wide. You don't want to show a lot of whites, but just opening them up. That shows interest. Um, raising your eyebrows um, shows a, a desire to find out what the other person is thinking or, or, or uh, feeling. Um, uh, nodding is a way to build affirmation. And then smiling. This is, is the simplest one of all, of course, that we all know. So, but if you put those four together, um, uh, then you get a very positive face. Uh, and I love to play with, I have a great little video of Paul McCartney, the famous rock and roller and former Beatle, 
Um, and when you see him perform, he's doing all four of those facial, facial gestures at once. And he's not only nodding, but he's rocking his head to the beat too. Try it. It's not as easy as it sounds to do all four at once. And yet uh, uh, you, you, you then look incredibly engaging. And that's why Paul was the most popular Beatle and why he remains popular to this day and just sort of universally loved is because he was very good at uh, signaling openness and friendliness um, to his audience. He knew, he knew that uh, very well. And, and also at a time, and it's still the case to a certain extent, when rock and rollers were expected to show a little attitude, you know, they were sort of pouty or sulky or angry looking. And that was a thing. That was okay. That was considered kind of cool. So here was Paul coming along, smiling and nodding and being friendly. And, and uh, hey, it worked. That's why he's worth a mil billion pounds or whatever he's worth. And still touring. And still working hard. Yeah, I'm still doing three-hour concerts. It's incredible. Yeah, he's um, he's recently announced an Australian tour. So going to obscure, go. obscure places around the country as well, which is good to see. Yeah, don't um, miss it because uh, he will give you a, a demonstration not only in his musicality, which is unbelievable, but uh, uh, also his body language. Friendliest rock and roller ever. That's awesome. And again, the, the longevity of that is is just crazy to see. Um, and as far as that goes, is that something that you feel that he and other people naturally do that or have that? Or is it something that you feel that people can consciously work on doing? You can certainly uh, consciously work on. It is not the case that we all come uh, into this world with the, with the ability to do all those things in a positive way at the right times. Um, we tend to just respond in the moment according to how we're feeling. And so to train yourself to do something like that, um, A, it can be done, and B, it, it, it takes a while uh, because, uh, for example, to train yourself to have more open gestures rather than closing your gestures um, to, be, to be more open requires an effort for a while. And then after a while, you get used to it and it's okay and it's easy to do. But it, it takes, I tell people who are working on it to become better public speakers that it'll take them uh, four to six weeks of hard work before they even begin to feel remotely comfortable on stage using those gestures as opposed to what people typically do when they go on stage because they feel self-conscious is they mm -hmm. find some way to bring their hands together in front of themselves. And this is a low level fight or flight or freeze syndrome response, right? If, if I'm feeling slightly uh, on, on uh, exposed on the spot, if I feel like everybody's looking at me, then in my instinct is to fight or flight or freeze to, to use the full technical term. And, and so, in order to be ready to do that, I need to have my hands up here in front of my torso, ready to fight now, or to protect myself. And so it's astounding. If you look at videos of speakers, as I do constantly, day after day after day, it's astounding. But I'm going to go on a limb and say 70% of them find some way to get their hands, hands here. And they're completely unaware of it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they'll often argue with me if I'll say, you know, you need to make your gestures more open. Like, I was open. And what they mean is they went like this. They have little moments of openness. Hi, it's mm -hmm. great to be here. And all that does is, is uh, open the door a little bit. Hey, I'm friendly. Oh, no, I'm not really. So you send out a very confusing body language message. 
I always say every communication is two conversations. On the one hand, it's the contents, what you're trying to say. And that's the point of humans getting together is to exchange stories, content, information about things. Um, but the second conversation is the body language. And if that supports your first conversation, then you can be a successful communicator. So if you come out and say, I'm really excited to be here, and you look excited to be here, and your gestures say you are, and your energy is high, and your voice is loud and enthusiastic, you know, then, um, then you'll be a successful communicator. You'll communicate that message, to pick a very simple example. But if you come out and you're like this and you say, I'm really excited to be here, you know, what's the audience going to believe? They're going to believe you're not excited and they're going to look for the exits because your body language contradicts the second conversation, contradicts the first conversation. And people always believe the second conversation because what they're trying to do is decode your intent. What's this going to be like for me? Who is this person? Oh, he's low energy. He's claiming he's high energy, but he's actually low energy. It's this is going to suck. Like, you know, show me the exits, right? So that, that's the kind of thinking that people do to decode the intent of others. And and they look to that second conversation to do it. Yeah. And then that would demonstrate that incongruence, isn't it, between those two things. And I guess when there is incongruence, then that's where people are going to go, something doesn't feel right, but it, isn't it? It's like that sometimes they may not know consciously what it is, but there's that, that thing that's like, no, just something feels off. Yeah. And this is the mistake that many people make. Uh, salespeople are on spot, especially for this, because they're meeting a lot of people for the first time. And so whatever their own natural feelings about that are, most people are a little hesitant. Like it can be, unless you're a wildly extroverted, happy person and you just love meeting everybody. Most of us have good days and bad days and there are days we feel more like meeting people and less, but uh, we'll give it away in our body language because our body language will say, oh, I'm feeling a little hmm, meh about this. Um, and we'll convey that. And to your point, the, the customer, um, won't register it consciously. They'll just get a slightly queasy feeling that that salesman really isn't all that enthusiastic or salesperson isn't all that enthusiastic about it or isn't fully there, fully present. Um, or as you say, they don't quite trust them or, or uh, there's something a little off about it. And we don't articulate those feelings to ourselves. We don't analyze it consciously and say, hmm, Nick looks a little off today. I'm not sure that I'm going to do business with him. Instead, uh, because our minds, our unconscious minds work much quicker than that. We just get, eh, no, this isn't great. I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, that's the way we react. And how would that then translate into a, like a virtual environment? So as we're here, as we are here, um, okay, for the, for the framing, um, generally you're getting sort of head and shoulders. Um, right. So what's the best way that a person can then use that space then to, you know, demonstrate that, that ability to connect, um, connection is a huge part of resilience and nurturing that. So in, in the virtual space, what's the best way to be able to, to bring that in? And, um, when you don't have the benefit of seeing the full body language, I guess, and how people are even positioning themselves and other, other you know, other aspects of body language we would generally use to, to make that unconscious assessment. Yeah. One of my favorite factoids about this is that we unconsciously measure when somebody leans toward us, of course, we, we might see them moving toward us, 
but we're also getting a slight change in the air pressure between us, which is incredible to think about. Our unconscious mind picks up on that. And we might also get a whiff of perfume or cologne if they're wearing that, you know, or even their sort of basic uh, body smells of various kinds, you know. Um, all of that gets taken in by the unconscious mind and and instantly analyzed. And basically, humans move toward things that they like and away from things that they don't like. Move toward smells that we like, mm, baking bread, you mm -hmm. know, and away from smells we don't like, ooh, rotten eggs, oh, you know. Uh, so uh, th that's deep and unconscious. And in person, we get that without any hesitation. So I can warm up the conversation by leaning into it or show eagerness or interest in the conversation by leaning into it. That doesn't come across in the virtual environment. So you get much less information. Even though we can see each other, we're not getting um, as clear sound. And that there's a bit of a geeky reason for that. But uh, uh, smell, taste, and touch are much weaker, of course, or non-existent uh, compared to in person. And the trick about the visual, which makes it very sneaky, is that we think we're seeing the other person, and we're so used to looking at pictures and watching movies and television and things that we're used to translating this image that we see into three dimensions. And if you do brain scans of people, um, if you watch a movie, they get affected in the same way that they would if they'd witnessed something in person. Like if you see a murder on television, then the effect, the memory of it is as if you'd seen a murder in person. But the the uh, memory is much less powerful. And, and that's not surprising particularly. But what happens is when it gets into two dimensions, a lot of the, uh, of the planes of the face, for example, are taken out. So I look flatter to you and you look flatter to me than we would in person. And one of the things that gets bleached out of that flatter expression is the sort of nuance of how I'm feeling and reacting to you and that kind of thing. So the whole experience is a little less connecting and energizing and exciting. Uh, and the trick about this is what makes this dangerous is and what I found when I was doing the research for my book. And I was really shocked because I'm a technophile. I love gadgets and, and I loved my iPhone when it came out, you know, and, and uh, I've, uh, I buy all the latest gadgets. I slowed down a little, but uh, so I love technology. And I thought back in 2017, when I started the research for the book, why isn't everybody doing video conferencing? It's such a great idea. You know, and at that point, it's hard to believe, hard to remember, but only 5% of Fortune 1000 companies were doing video conferencing. So 95% were not, and it changed, flipped entirely in March 2020, as you can imagine. Um, and the, everybody learned really, really fast. But as time went on, the, the issues with it developed, and people started talking about Zoom fatigue. Um, and one of the things that experts like me started articulating was that our depth of connection with somebody that we've only met online is not as strong because they're two-dimensional. So they're not as real to us. Uh, and as a result, the way you need to overcome this, and I think this is a long-winded answer to your question, but the way that you overcome this 
is by going very deep, you have to not do the kinds of chit chat that you normally would in a conversation if you were in person. You have to instead get deep and real about what's actually going on. Go to some important topic that you both care a lot about, and then you can make a connection. You just have to work that much harder. So when we, when we meet in person, we do chit chat and we think what we're doing is sort of getting to know each other. Actually, what we're doing is allowing our unconscious minds to exchange huge amounts of information about each other. What we smell like, look like, sound like, that kind of thing. And, and uh, that doesn't happen online because the, the five senses are reduced. Um, and so chit chat is pointless online. It really is. Instead, you should just immediately jump into the topic that you're both or all of you are passionate. That's super interesting. I, I, I definitely didn't know that. And I, don't, and I can imagine that that must feel a bit forward or a little bit abrupt at mm -hmm. first. Like, mm -hmm. is, that, is that a natural response that people have to, I guess, you giving them that advice to try that? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So uh, I, during the pandemic, I worked with a lot of organizations and they were all trying to set up various kinds of ongoing successful groups of various kinds. Some of them were work groups, teams of people, employees of the organization. Others of them were sort of happy hours. You remember early on in the pandemic, everybody was trying to do happy hour, um, do something social because the fear was people were isolated and they couldn't get to know their teammates, especially if they were new to the company, this kind of thing. Um, and then there were various other attempts to reach out to customers and things like that. And so I studied, I got to study a lot of them and advise a lot of a lot of these things and it was fascinating to me the only ones that survived any length of time were the ones that had they met two criteria one was everybody cared passionately about the subject so it's imagine like a group of of beetle fans getting together and talking about the beetles you know that that would be more likely to survive because everybody brings the passion to it and if they had a structured way to get deep into their area of expertise, their shared passion, quickly. And so the thing, the one of the things that be, was a real uh, a victim of the pandemic was the happy hours things. Those did not last because, uh, again, chit chat makes sense when you're exchanging beers and and you're in close space with each other and and can exchange, as I say, the unconscious information. It didn't really make sense online and it was just too hard to do for people. That's, that's super fascinating. So the, the shared interest and, and, and structure. So, and I think, look, you know, when, when you're talking about sales and you're having those conversations, structure is helpful anyway, to at least give the, the person that you're speaking to, like, here's, here's the plan rather than where are you taking me? What are you going to do with me? So. I think that that's, that's really helpful to bring those things together. And I guess, you know, taking it one step, one step back again, another level of complexity in that connection and communication, if people are doing their stuff predominantly by phone, what's your advice there about, you know, creating that connection and the similar things that obviously each, each layer we're removing these different abilities that we would naturally use. So from, right. from a phone, phone perspective, how would a sales professional approach that because I guess a lot of them especially you know their, their bulk of their stuff you know building pipeline and stuff like that is going to start with probably some written communication and phone but yeah I um, guess from a phone perspective what's the best way to do that well it, it, you want to think about it as uh, 
I would say you do want to think about a structured way to go deep. So uh, think of, and then think about it as listening more than talking. So you should be asking questions. You should be getting information about things that matter to the to the customer as well as to you, of course. Uh, and so I would have very structured conversations ready that dive deep into the area of expertise where you can add some value to the conversation. Now, rather than thinking of yourself as somebody who's trying to get a customer to say yes, think of yourself as, as somebody who's educating that customer to make the best decision about a particular thing, that, a product or a service that you're selling. The best salespeople that I've worked with are ones who see themselves as providing uh, information at the right time to the customer, wherever they are on their decision-making journey. And uh, they might even give them reasons, you know, not to purchase now, but to wait until the time was right or not to purchase this particular model, even if it's a more high margin model or something, rather than pick this other thing. Because they know that if they can get the customer to be really happy and locked into something, then that customer will become an advocate for them and uh, enthusiastic about the product because uh, that's the way things go these days. Uh, so that's what you want. You want a bunch of advocates out there who you served well and therefore are grateful and, and they will serve you well by giving you um, testimonials or becoming your advocate. And I can imagine when people start implementing these things, um, it's going to yeah, feel awkward and clunky and things like that to start with. And I think there's going to be some, probably some uncomfortable experiences where it doesn't quite land the way that they'd intended it to. Um, so what role do you feel that resilience has then in that process of becoming a better communicator, becoming a better salesperson, and I guess their overall success in sales? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's enormously important in any, any field of endeavor where you're going to get as many no's as you get yeses. Um, you've got to be, uh, you've got to be resilient just to, to learn from your mistakes, not take them personally. And well, and learn from the nose, that may not even be your mistake. It may just not be the right time for that particular customer. And, and part of your, your uh, research process, your interrogation process, if you will, of the customer should be to find those kind of things out. It's like where they are uh, and all that. I'm sure your salespeople realize that uh, already, but where resilience comes into play is not only getting you through the times when it doesn't seem to be working, um, but also helping you take the long view to understand why the heck it is you're in the business, what it is you're offering, and to make it through the long haul um, as you get established, especially if you're new in a business. You know, when I, uh, when I first started my own company and I was selling communications, coaching, I, I had six months before I booked any, any revenue, and that was a scary six months. And if I hadn't been convinced that ultimately work out. And I, if I didn't love what I was doing so much, then I never would have made it through those six months. So you got to be, simply have to be uh, resilient in the face of getting to know what it is you're actually selling or what it is you're actually offering to the customers and how best to connect with them about that and get to getting to know them and what they need so that you can, you can tailor your solutions to them and so on and so forth. So I would say resilience was everything. Without that, you're not going to last long enough to do to do sales at all. And sales is a tough job. Yeah, my goodness, six months. Like that's that's a pretty terrifying prospect, isn't it? Like anyone that's going into something and it's been 11 years since I started my business as well. And 
there's still times, even when you're well into your business, where you have those, you have the, the droughts at times where, but as you said, it's having that belief in what you do and the importance and the value that it has. That's a big one. Having that, that real connection to the purpose and the difference that you can make is, is super important. Is there anything, anything that you did during that time? And I guess, and you still do today in your business to consciously make sure that you do have that resilience there to keep going, even just keeping up the pace day to day, regardless of rejection and setback. Like what, what is it that you do um, to make sure that you do have like plenty of reserves of resilience personally? Yeah. So there, there are two things that I do that, that have really helped me over the long haul. First of all, I see my job or my chance with potential customers and, and new people that I meet um, as I, this may sound a little uh, pie in the sky or something, but I don't actually think about making a sale at first and, and I may take it too far. I don't know, but it's worked out for me. So why would I change now? But anyway, I think about how do I get to know this person and how can I connect them into my world in a way which will make uh, grateful, happy campers out of them. And so I, I prefer to do a favor first for somebody and, and help them out in some way. And then later on, we can talk about business. And that's partly because my business tends to be long-term relationships with people that I'm helping over over years, certainly months and, and usually years. And the time isn't always right when they first come and talk to me. And But I'll try to do something for them then or, or uh, make some connection, introduce them to somebody that they should know, that kind of thing. And then I'll say, hey, if the time is right, give me a call. And I would say almost certainly every month, almost every week, I'll hear from somebody who says, Nick, it's finally time to work together. And I'm thinking, who the heck is this person? And I literally got a call the other day from somebody I hadn't heard from since 2010. Wow. And, yeah. And this is 2023, last time I checked. And a very nice guy who called up and said, and he expected me to remember who the heck he was. I had worked with him back in 2010. He'd since gone on to become the CEO of a company, and now he wanted his executives to be trained. And I was thrilled once I sort of remembered everything that was going on there. But uh, it took me a minute. It came back to me, and it was because we had built the value early on. So that's the first thing that for me. It's just it's about the, the golden rule or the ironclad rule or the deep human need for reciprocity. So I always look to do something for other people first. That's my secret. I've never said that in a podcast before, Stacy. So now you have to keep that secret from me. But the other thing is I, I steal a page from your book and I can't honestly remember whether I learned this from you or we learned it at the same time or whatever, but I'm, I'm happy to give you credit for it because I know I started thinking about it when you started talking about it. And that is, it's really important to have rituals built into your, your day-to-day -day work. Um, so that it has it has meaning for you. You're doing it for a purpose, and that purpose can be as simple as making a living. But you still need to have a purpose, and to have to bring that purpose to mind to remind you of it. I believe deeply in the power of of simple little rituals to uh, to celebrate wins and to get over losses and and just to get you through day to day. So I thought uh, when I first heard you talking about that, I thought that was uh, brilliant insight. And I had been doing it, I think, I, I guess, sort of naturally or, or instinctively, but I hadn't really articulated that way before. But for example, I have a, a Tibetan uh, 
bowl, one of those brass bowls, right? And a little gong. And when I start work in the morning, I hit that gong. And that's that's the way I become fully present and get aware that I'm here and it's time to pay attention and do what I'm doing, right? And so simple little little ritual. That's a very simple one, but it does help me focus. That and a cup of coffee uh, and I'm ready to go. You know, So I okay. recommend rituals highly. Thank you for, for sharing that. And it's been something that we have talked about a bit over the years. And it's interesting because, mm-hmm. yeah, rituals was something that I hadn't really considered the things I do as rituals. And it was, you know, starting to evolve processes through 2020, especially. Um, but it's just nice. I think when you realize that rituals are things that are done with intention, um, then that's when it becomes really powerful. And I love the little gong sound is so important. It sounds vibration. That sort of brings us to one of the other elements of resilience rocks and that being music and the power of music in order to build resilience um, and music having the power to change your state, whether it's to elevate your state, to calm you, to get you centered, focused, any of those things. So I love that that gong is something that gets you that focused. If you needed to play a song, if you've got a go-to song that helps you to change your state, what would that one be for you? This may be ridiculous, but as you know, as a, being a speaker, when the time comes to take the stage, you've got to be on. And I've, this first happened to me. I had had a speech booked. This was uh, about eight years ago, seven, uh, nine years ago now. And it was booked for a Monday morning. I had gone to visit my father who was ailing at that point. He was dying. Um, and I'd gone to visit him Saturday. And he had been mostly unconscious, but he woke up and he made eye contact. He knew who I was. And it was a very moving moment. And I had no idea what was going to happen next, but it was uh, important that I had had that last moment with him because we got the call the next morning. He'd passed away. And then I had to give the speech on Monday. And I debated long and hard for that 24 hours, should I share with the audience that my father had just died and that I really wasn't in a great space? And I thought, okay, so the topic does not really have anything to do with, uh, in this case, with death of a loved one. And so the answer really was, was no, it wasn't right to share it with the audience because it was going to overwhelm whatever else we talked about. So it wasn't fair to them. It wasn't fair to the organizer. And in a way, it wasn't fair to me because it had happened so recently that I hadn't fully processed it yet. And so I was, it was still raw for me. So it, knowing the research on music and how it taps right into the emotional centers, I thought, I need a really peppy piece of music to get me going for this. Otherwise, I'm just not going to get through. And so... Uh, Tom Cruise had just come out with one of the Mission Impossible movies at that point. And so I played the theme song for Mission Impossible. It was a kind of it was a kind of ironic joke, you know, like this is impossible. I can't do this. My father just died, you know, it's crazy, but I have to do it anyway. So like we're gonna do this. And something about that catchy tune that I was reading somewhere the other day, somebody said it's the best movie music ever written, or, or I guess it was written originally for the TV show, but the best TV show music ever written. And I, I would have to agree with that. It certainly is completely unique and, and a fabulous. You know, when you hear that, that you're going to watch some exciting stuff, right? And so uh, that got me through that, that day, that really hard day. And, and ever since now, I play it just because it's become a thing. 
So that's my that's my piece of music, Mission Impossible. Do you know it's in my head now? Yeah, it's right. Try to get it out. Yeah. yeah. Do, 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 do. It's just that type of thing. And I love that that you that you found that piece. And it's so cool, isn't it? Because again, that depth of meaning that it had for you. But also, again, it, it engages the audience as well, doesn't it? And it gets them in that I'm gonna hear it's like it's a bit there's that element of suspense and intrigue and all those types of things that yeah. come with it. Excitement. And, you know, it's so funny because my sort of walk on music has ended up being the Rocky theme. So it's like, you know, the, it's the, also you know, the, good. Yeah. the movie music. So, um, so what well, do I do and is- that's because there's such a deep emotional connection there for, for both of us with Rocky or with Mission Impossible. There's a whole uh, uh, emotional arc that goes, goes with that music then. So it's even more powerful. And you could do it also with a, a pop song. I, there are tons of, as we started with the Beatles, tons of Beatles Paul McCartney music, no. but um, but I like Mission Impossible for all those reasons of association and and for the element of yeah the slight element of risk or danger or excitement or something going on you know that's that makes the speech exciting. Yeah, it's I, I think it's great. So what I'm going to do is I've got the Resilience Rocks playlist on Spotify. So I'm yeah. going to find the Mission Mission Impossible theme. I'm going to add that to the list. I think it's an excellent. excellent it's an excellent addition. And speaking of excellent additions, my gosh, all of the insights that you've shared with us on, on the communication and all the different forms and, and the ways to, you know, practice that, the science behind it has been super, super fascinating personally. And I know for our audience, people in sales to be able to bring a whole nother level to their their connection and their communication is going to be super valuable. So I am really grateful that you've been able to come and join us today. And if people would like to learn more about you, work with you, find out a little bit more about what you do, where's the best place for people to reach out and connect with you? It's the website, uh, publicwords, P-U-B-L-I-C-W-O-R-D-S.com. And there's, speaking of reciprocity, there's a treasure trove of free information on there, on the blog, lots of little uh, short pieces on how to do this or that, uh, and a number of pieces on sales. So just Go to the blog, put the term that you're looking for in the search, and then you'll you'll come up with a bunch of blogs and blog posts. It's mostly based on neuroscience, so it's sound stuff. It'll help stuff and, you can put to work right away. And I definitely can vouch for that. I've um, implemented many things that you've shared with me over the years that have definitely helped me to become a better communicator, a better speaker. I'm always um, very grateful and appreciative for everything that you've done to help me. I definitely advocate getting onto publicwords.com and definitely suggest popping your name in to subscribe. I love getting the weekly emails. I love clicking through and reading those. And I find there's so much value in it. I'm a frequent retweeter of the stuff that I see there because there's so much value in it. So again, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Until next time on Resilience Rock Sales be your best and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us again this week on Resilience Rock Sales. Don't just listen though, take action. The best sales professionals are always learning. Head over to resiliencerocks.com now to go backstage and get the resources mentioned today to help rock your sales goals. (laughs) 